Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you're using a, a pew Bible or a, pew, a, a Bible in the rack, I think it's page 944. Over the past couple of months, as my daughter Maggie has moved back home in preparation for her wedding, I've been given a series of dad jobs to do. On one of the errands in which I was with her, she shared with someone in her enthusiasm, I'm getting married. And the man looked at her sort of perplexed and said, why? Well, hardly missing a beat and looking straight at him, she said, well, I need to start building my army sometime. I'll return to her answer a little later in my sermon. I'll, I will tell you now, though, she, she told me, I just thought of that just now. But for now, I'd like to highlight something else in the exchange, the question itself. The man asked why. In other words, why in this day and in this age are you getting married? I think this is a problem in our society today. Not only is the definition of marriage a matter of cultural debate, although God's terms remain unchanged, but more to the point this morning, the practice of marriage is in crisis in the West. More people than ever are choosing not to get married at all. And those who are getting married are marrying later, well beyond the prime biological years of fertility, which is 18 to 24 for a female. And subsequently, those who are, who are marrying are having children later and having fewer children, if any at all. So what do we... How do we explain this decline? Well, our, our church, I mentioned in the announcements, is currently hosting a marriage course for young married couples, and we have explored a few of these ideas together. This morning is, is not the time to delve deeply into them. I'll just offer this summary explanation from my perspective. The, the reason marriage in decline is in decline is so many other things is I believe the seemingly innate human impulse to tell the story of your life apart from God. This is what I mean. Whether you're a storyteller or not, I heard Banjo was a great storyteller many times, and he is. What I'm saying, though, is that the way you live your life actually tells a story. We're all storytellers in that sense. So how are you telling the story of your life? Is God a leading player in the story? Is he the author of the story? Is he in the story? This ties into marriage because marriage is God's idea. He created marriage in the beginning as a means by which his creatures, the, our, our first parents, the first humans, would fulfill his purposes in the world. God said it's not good for man to be alone. So marriage is a picture of a divinely forged partnership for fulfilling the story of God in the world. That's what it is. 
So regardless of why marriage might be on decline from a cultural point of view, when viewed from scripture, the decline of marriage is a symptom of either an individual or a society bending away from the story of God. Now in my text this morning, Paul understands the world and the story of the world differently than this. Now he doesn't mention marriage specifically in Romans 8, it's not there. But he does mention a number of important marriage values, such as patience and freedom and redemption. And he also mentions challenges, which certainly are true in general, and all of them are true in marriage, suffering, agony, and frustration. But the overarching theme of our text is hope, and that's an important note for marriage as well. So my sermon is called Salvation by Hope, and it's not particularly about marriage, but it's inspired by my daughter's wedding yesterday. So in our text in Romans 8, 18 to 25, I'm inviting you to think about the story of the world from the perspective of Paul and God. And there's three different questions here that we're going to explore. The first one is, why do we need salvation by hope in the first place? Salvation by hope makes an assumption that we need saving. There was a man on the street who was asked by an evangelist, brother, are you saved? And he said, from what? So why do we need salvation in the first place? The second question is, what's the goal? Is salvation the goal or is there another larger goal? And third, how do you receive this salvation by hope? I'm hoping that while inspired by my daughter's wedding, and I think it's an encouragement along these lines, I think it's going to be a general uh, help to you to live your life in the story that God is writing, as opposed to the other way around. So let's begin by reading scripture in Romans chapter 8. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your holy word. Thank you that it is compared to a light for a traveler on a dark path keeps us from stumbling or even 
falling to our ruin. Thank you that it is compared to life for the dying. Thank you that you compare it to a knife which cuts at times, but also to a balm which heals. So Lord, in the reading and now the explanation of your word, may it indeed shine its light and give us life, cut where needed, and bring healing to all of our hearts and souls, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question, why do we need salvation and hope in the first place? Remember that question by that evangelist. Brother, are you saved? From what? So to get our bearings with this question, salvation by hope, the apostle directs our thinking for an, towards an utterly realistic recognition that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. There's a number of very vivid negatives in this text. The very first phrase, I consider the sufferings of this present age were being advertised, that we're diving in to life not as we wish it were, but life as it is. This present time, it says, the, the word there is this, this now age, this phase of humanity. It raises a number of important other questions, but for now we're just saying that it's a very realistic look. Suffering, frustration, Sin, difficulty, vanity, decay, it's all part of our lives. Look particularly at verse 20 of the text. Paul writes, for the creation was subjected to futility. The word here for futility is borrowed by Paul from that great book in the Old Testament, that pick-me-up book, you know, when you're really down and you need inspiration, Ecclesiastes first line of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Talk about realism. So Paul really is evoking Ecclesiastes when he's saying the creation was subject to futility. Insert the book of Ecclesiastes, but also insert Genesis chapter 3. Paul here in verse 20 is, is describing what happened in the original paradise garden of Eden, when man and woman sinned, God subjected the world, along with man and woman, to vanity. The creation that's being described here in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, is what theologian Doug Moo calls the subhuman creation. This is the inanimate, inanimate world, but not the world of humankind and not angels. So plants have been subjected to futility. When you walk through the woods, you can see a giant growth bulging out on the side of a tree, and that's a, a tumor. It's not the way trees are meant to grow. It's a, a fungus or a virus of some kind that's infected that tree. If you look in the paper and hear about a tsunami, or if you're from this part of the world and you hear about a giant tsunami racing through the Pacific that crashes with devastating um, destruction in a place like Japan or Indonesia or India. That's not how the world is supposed to work. The oceans are not supposed to ravage and destroy the cities of man. If you're concerned about 
the heat and you wonder, is this a function of our, of our warming planet? Is it because the ozone layer is being, being uh, degraded because of our excess carbon monoxide in the atmosphere? Well, the world isn't supposed to cause harm to humans. We're not supposed to suffer in the world. God's design was not that. We hear talk about the, the dying solar system and the gradual cooling of the sun, and I'm not a, an astronomer, so I can't explain how all of that works. Even think of a little bird caught under a net, like happened in my front yard not too long ago. Now, I wasn't happy with this bird because he was eating my blueberries. But I felt bad for the bird, and I let him go. But a bird shouldn't get caught under a net. If I hadn't let him go, that bird would have died. This isn't how the world is supposed to be. This is the decay, the vanity, the frustration, the futility, the suffering that our text is describing. Now, you might not agree on the reason as to proposed as to why they're not working, but no one can argue that the world is broken in so many ways. One trip to the grocery store, even driving here this morning, there's a thousand evidences that things are not as they ought to be. What happened? Paul says in 20 that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but by the one who subjected it. Hodge says, when Paul says creation is subjected to futility, he's saying that creation was placed under a curse by God, by the authority of God. In Genesis 3.17, God says, Cursed is the earth for thy sake, so the earth suffers for the sins of man. That's the biblical explanation. And it's throughout the scriptures. The prophet Jeremiah, halfway through the story, says in Jeremiah chapter 12, How long shall the land mourn for the wickedness of them that dwells therein? So there's a connection in the Bible between our degradation, our poverty, our sin, our inwardness, our selfishness, and this groaning, this yearning, this longing of the land, of the world. Someone has said that creation plays a symphony in a minor key. In punishment for the sins of man, futility fell upon the entire order of the world. Gravity itself is subject to this futility, this purposelessness, this emptiness. I think it's the notion of a physical expression that things fall apart. <laughs> Just try leaving something in your garage for a couple of weeks or a year or 10 years. Things fall apart. I was thinking about a car. Well, change your oil. Because if you run out of oil, all those metal parts that are going to be grinding against each other are going to generate a whole lot of heat. And what happens when metal parts inside of an engine moving very fast get hot? It stops. So change your oil. And if you don't, you will lose your car. Put gas in the tank. This is, this is part of the futility. You have to constantly put more gas in the tank. There's no perfect engine. If you studied 
science is something called machines and friction slows everything down. Got to put gas in the tank and it's, for that matter, it's a, it's a fossil fuel. Thinking of the car and, and vanity, I turned on my wipers the other day when it was raining and the, all this heat that we've had, uh, I guess the rubber strips on my win window wipers have, have become degraded a little bit. I couldn't see through my window. Got to change my wipers, which is it's like $20 a wiper blade. Now that's vanity. And then tires, oh my goodness. They're supposed to take you from point A to point B, but just at the moment you're late or you need to be someplace, you look down and your rim is sitting on the, on the ground. You ran over a screw in the driveway or a, a broken shard of glass. You can do this experiment with any number of things, your house, your job, a relationship. One more observation, though, before I move to the second point. Our text says that creation was subjected to frustration not willingly. What does this mean? Well, creation in, in this passage is personified. It's pictured as groaning, as yearning, as longing. Personification is when we give something that has no feelings or no mind. We attribute human qualities to them. But in fact, creation is not sentient. It doesn't have thoughts. Creation didn't do anything in the fall. The original sin from Adam and Eve, our first parents, was not the fault of the planet, the dirt, the ground, the sky, the trees. They didn't sin. But God had so linked the destiny of mankind and the destiny of nature that when man sins, creation falls with us. Unlike man, creation became subject to sin by the actions of someone else. Our own voluntary act has subjected the world to a curse. So the first question then is, why do we need salvation by hope? It's because of sin, suffering. Second question is, what's the goal? What's the reason? What's the purpose? Where are we headed? When I say salvation by hope, what's the ultimate thing that the apostle has in view? The verse here is in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Where are we headed with this? Paul answers this by pointing to the past, the present, and the future. Due to sin and suffering, the picture which Paul wants to put in your mind is this. Creation is not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way it was designed. But this means something else. If it's not the way it was supposed to be, then it's not always been this way. Creation wasn't always subject to vanity. In the past, Paul shows us that at some point in time, creation wasn't frustrated as it is now. Verse 20 again says, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, who subjected it in hope. The hope of the removal of the vanity was present even as sin fell upon the world. The fact is that creation wasn't always this way shows that uh, the world, creation itself, 
is not inherently wrong. It's not inherently bad. So the law of tooth and claw, if we want to talk about this, it's not a permanent law. It wasn't true, and it won't be true. And so Paul is looking to the past and pointing that out, saying, when the curse fell upon the land, when the curse fell upon the world, the universe, there was an element of hope there. Secondly, Paul points to the present. He says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And then 19, creation waits presently. It waits with eager longing. One, one theologian said eager longing is, picture a little boy or a little girl uh, at, a, at a counter up on her tippy toes looking over. There's a jar of candy there. It's eager longing, and then you're reaching for that candy. You can't quite get it, so you put your leg up. Creation is this little child that eagerly longs in the present, in the moment, for a full and perfect restoration and renewal. I'll touch on this later on in the message, but this groaning here is not a, it's not a negative groaning. I mean, it's in response to something negative, but it's not complaining. The groaning in the passage is a, is a, a yearning for fullness. It's a heartache of separated lovers. We don't like the where we're at, but we can't wait to get back together. That's the groaning that's in view. And so Paul points to the present, describing the frustrated groaning, the longing of a heartsick lover. And creation is like that lover. It's longing to be freed from this, this decay. Again, personifying, creation doesn't have a mind, but there's something inherent in the world that God made that, that hums on a tight string, waiting for the end to come. And there is an end. So Paul points to the future as well. Look at verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This present bondage to corruption is going to end. It will cease. It'll be like a, a prison sentence. You see a movie where the dude walks out of prison, he's got a duffel bag or nothing, and the gates open up. And that man in, this, in that movie is creation. Creation is in jail. It's in, it's, it's, uh, uh, in slavery. It's in servitude, unwillingly. It's incarcerated, but it's innocent. And there will come a time where, where the gavel will fall and creation will be released from its sentence. And he'll walk out a free man. That's creation in the future. It's a liberation or freedom from the curse of vanity, corruption, and sin. Hodge says that, that the vanity of the world was never meant to be final. And it isn't. The system design is for fullness and blessing. What we're experiencing is an aberration. It's a tangent. We saw this, and we've seen it in James in the series of messages I've been preaching over the last several months. God causes renewal to take place in the lives of believers, individual followers of Christ, and we become little outposts of the new world. And we're, we're to bring that light and life everywhere we go. 
where Second uh, Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is an instance of the new creation. So heaven has, has touched earth through the power of the gospel in the lives of those who believe. And, and I believe we have some ability, and, and I'll, I'll offer some concluding thoughts on this, to push back against the curse. I mean, even, even research in, in fighting cancer is incredible how we have made progress here. I think it's an, an instance of what we're talking about. Before I move to the third point, a few things need to be made very clear regarding what sin has done to the world. If you haven't heard me say it, sin has adjusted but not annihilated God's plan for the world. God had a plan before sin entered the world. Sin has adjusted that plan, but it has not annihilated it. Put it another way, creation was on a trajectory before the fall, and the fall of man, according to the Bible story, has not destroyed that trajectory. It's created an, it's necessitated another way for accomplishing that trajectory. God still intends to, to fill the universe with his glory, which was his plan from the beginning. He still intends to do that. So the catastrophe of the curse delays God's plan to a certain degree, but it does not destroy it. So we're about hope. Hope and salvation by hope, which is my theme this morning, directs our attention and our focus not to the negative, though we have to be brutally honest, as Paul is here, but to what's to come. As I said, the groaning is a kind of embrace of a future that hasn't yet arrived. I have to catch myself in this. There's a huge difference between complaining and groaning. A huge difference. I've performed many funerals over the years, and in the Anglican ritual that I use, the wording says this, in the midst of life, we are in death. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful poetic phrase, in the midst of life, we are in death. But for this morning, I want to flip it on its head and say, in the midst of the vanity, in the midst of the decay, in the midst of the corruption, we have life. There is life. We're groaning and yearning. We can taste it. We have been given a taste of it. And we're not to be discouraged or to complain. We are to groan and even lament at times. Well, I mentioned in the beginning Maggie's answer to a man, why are you getting married? I, I want to resolve this for you, my thoughts in this little army comment of hers. She said, I got to start building my army sometime. A after she left, she said, that was kind of cool. I just thought of it just now. And then she explained, I've been trying to figure out how to answer people when they ask me that. Apparently, this isn't the first time she's been asked. I think in short form, in, in Maggie speak, perhaps, she was saying that marriage has meaning beyond me. Marriage has a purpose. Now, if I were to decode it into pastor speak, would say she's tapped into the eschatological heart of the world. God has drawn his bow and he's doing something with the world. He didn't have to create, but he did. And having created, he didn't have to create man, but he did. And having done so, he, he gave us his image. He didn't have to, he did. He could have stopped there. 
that he scooped our first parents, Adam and Eve, he scooped us up and he placed us in fellowship and community with him in a garden temple called Eden. He didn't have to do that. And that situation is a place of union and communion with your creator. And their mission was to take the beauty of Eden and extend it around the world. That remains. That remains in place. And somehow, I think, with Maggie's answer, she was picking up on that. Now, because of sin and the final and ultimate renewal cannot come by our own efforts alone. Adam had that option. We don't. We are now so bound up with the frustration that was created in that, in that crisis that we need a divine intervention. Christians call this the parousia, the coming, the arrival, the final return of Christ in the end of time, the judgment, sometimes it's called. But it's not here yet. So in the meantime, Maggie and Banjo have begun to build their army. And I think that's pretty cool. I'm going to end with that third question. I had one more question. The saved by hope or salvation by hope is our topic. The question is how? How are you saved by hope? My answer is, and I think Paul is saying this in our passage, in order to experience salvation by hope, you need the gospel. Now remember what I just said. I said we can no longer accomplish God's purposes in the world on our own. If you've tried and you're honest, you will agree with me. I'll repeat that. If you've tried and you're honest, you will agree with me. You cannot do it on your own. You can make some small progress, but it's sort of like climbing up a sand hill. Eventually, you slide back down. We need the gospel. This is the divine intervention. Three things on this. One, you need to consider, is what Paul says in verse 18. I'm told that uh, famous theologian John Calvin died with Romans 8.18 on his lips. I'm like, I hope I die with some, saying some cool, profound thing. I'll probably just go, oh. Look at what Paul says. And Calvin said, apparently, I consider that the sufferings of this present, and, and by the way, the anecdote for Calvin is that he died midway reciting this verse. So it's like this. I consider that the sufferings of this present times are not worth comparing. Ugh. So cool. And then he's there. The glory that he was about to say with words. The Christian hope is that he was immediately in glory. But the word that to underline here, if you have a Bible, circle or underline or put an asterisk, make a note. Consider. At the heart of this word is the word logic. Think about it. Make the grid, the decision grid, the pros and the cons. Weigh it out. Lady Justice is blind. Two scales. Paul is weighing things. He's using logic. He's thinking clearly. He's dismissing irrelevant evidence. He's holding on to even difficult, awkward, uncomfortable evidence that, that shoots holes in his theory. He's looking at it as, as honestly as he can, he says, having looked at this thing hard and carefully, 
I've considered that these present sufferings in the grand scheme cannot compare to what is to come. How are you saved by hope? It's not automatic. You've got to think about it. What we see will suck you in so quickly. What we experience in our day-to-day will absolutely overwhelm and dominate your life such that either problems or pleasures will be your grand design. Paul says, I've been thinking about this. I've done some considering. And the outcome is that he is convinced that the sufferings of the present time are very, very small in comparison with what's to come. On the one side of the scale are the, are the now things, the things that you see. And on the other side of the scale are the glory things, the things that are unseen. And he said, that's what's worth living for. That's what it's all about. And I think for some of you, this sort of consideration needs to involve some negative heart work. Negative heart work. Because what you have been considering has been wrong. Ask an engineer, ask a mathematician, physicist. One wrong calculation, the whole thing crumbles. I remember in, when I was taking algebra, I had these long problems and you know, I'd work them out, work them out, and I'd get the wrong answer. I'd actually usually say, I just, I'll wait for class and the teacher can show me how to do it. But a good student will go back to the first line, right? Every symbol, every X, every Y, every Z will look at it. If you're a programmer, you have to do this, right, Pete? I mean, one little thing. You can have pages of code. Some of you need to repent of false hopes, is what I'm getting at. See, Paul was an idolater. Paul was a self-serving man. He was a man on his own, a self-made mission. And God got a hold of him and changed his whole logic structure and taught him to reckon or consider or count differently. This is truly new math. How did he arrive at this calculation? I think the answer was is that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the X factor. Well, in that case, let's go back to the beginning and just line by line and rework this code. Since Jesus is alive, I need to rethink everything that I have been living for is what, what I think basically happened for him. It's because of the resurrection of Christ that Paul has moved to take up this hope-filled stance, salvation by hope, towards the difficulties of, of life. I'm going to mention this in a minute in terms of optimism. He's not just optimistic. He is being saved by hope because Jesus is alive. He's changed his way of thinking. But I also think that having, having undergone that fundamental conversion of your logic, I'll put it that way, the gospel requires a regular, for, for Christian believers, regular, even a daily reassessment. So the consideration of verse 18, I've considered that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's coming, that thing, that's a daily renewal. 
That's what Sunday is. I mean, that's why we come to church. My logic needs an adjustment. That's what it is. It's a little embarrassing, but in about 10 minutes after the benediction, you will be running that old logical program and living as if Jesus isn't alive and this world is all there is and all that matters are your problems or your pleasures. Guaranteed, 10 minutes, set your watch. So this is a daily, even at times, a moment by moment. And the passage here talks about the Holy Spirit and the larger context of Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible makes this clear. But ask any saint who's been following the Lord for many years will tell you, I need Jesus as much today as I ever did. My reckoning muscle is just as weak as it's ever been. So how, how do you experience this? You need to consideration. But our text also mentions an, a very interesting phrase, which is a whole other sermon, but I'm just going to touch on it. This word in Romans 8, adoption. We have a few families who have adopted in our church. Adoption is the inclusion of a, of a non-biological child in your family for various circumstances, and lots of stories can be shared here. But verse 19, the creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's how we have that daily logical recalibration, by the way. First fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await adoption as sons. Again, just to be very brief, Paul said in Romans 8.15, which is not in our passage this morning, that we are adopted as sons. But yet he says we await the adoption. There's something about our, our experience with God that is already true, but yet still incomplete. And on this point about being sons, Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, the first created human, was a disobedient son. That's what happened. That's the story. Christ came as a new Adam, the son of God. And so, so far from being exclusive, the adoption of sons is the greatest privilege we could ever have because we are being identified with Jesus himself. He is the faithful son. He is the loyal, obedient son. And by his faithfulness, by his loyalty, we are guaranteed to be received by the Father until, however, the corruption in creation and in our bodies is eliminated. Our adoption will not be seen for what it is. And finally, how do we receive it? We need to be hopeful. Yes, it requires consideration. Yes, it involves adoption, but it involves hope. That's the theme. Hope is essential. To be saved by hope, you need hope, even in the face of difficulty and hardship. Paul says in verse 25, it requires endurance and patience. How do you have hope? 
I've mentioned a couple of times, it isn't just having a positive mental outlook. It's resting on a confident knowledge that as surely as Jesus has risen from the dead, that we have, we, we have the certainty of a bright and glorious future. Now, if that didn't happen, we're fools. So for us, it all hinges on the resurrection from the dead. But there is something else that's critical ingredient to hope. You know, when you make a recipe and you leave out that one spice, there's a spice that often is missed by believers when it comes to hope, and that spice is the word in our text called groaning. Now, I tend to substitute spice of groaning for complaining. It's not a good substitute. Groaning is tied to hope in this way. In his book on the virtue of lament, author Mark Vrokeep says that the culture of the United States is enamored with optimism. Many American Christians struggle with making optimism an idol, he says. But this, pain and suffering can expose our misplaced trust and open up paths of genuine hope. Groaning recognizes the pain and leans into it in hope that it's not forever. Complaining, what I do, leans away from the pain and just gets mad. I don't deserve this. Groaning leans into the pain and lament towards God, towards the suffering, and says, Lord, how long? I know this isn't permanent. I trust you. I need... So it's engaging and personal in that sense. No mere optimism will do. You do need hope in order to be saved by hope. Groaning, unlike complaining, is a yearning and pressing forward to attain that which is still future. It is a determined perspective. It's a consideration to see your life and trials as part of God's story and not just your own little short fictional tale. It isn't just being stoic or impassive about the problems. Groaning is required. It's an emotional engagement. It's seeing the trial and hating the trial, but then knowing that it's not forever. Hoping that God will soon, very soon, destroy all evil and opposition in the world and all will be made new. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, both having read it and heard it explained. We, we desire to be saved by hope. And yet there are barriers. So please, Father, send your Holy Spirit as you promised to help us with our reckoning, our considerations, our logic. May we see the world not as it is, but as you made it to be and as it will one day be. And may you take off the blinders and help us see the grand panorama of the drama that you're unfolding right before our very eyes. And in each of our conditions, whether married or unmarried, single or otherwise, may we each with earnest begin to build our armies and join you in this great work. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.
mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.